This morning's scripture reading comes from Exodus chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of this land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by... But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me, for I am of, for I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and gave, them a char- and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Let's pray together. Father, our passage tells us that the people didn't listen to Moses because they had been bearing under a harsh slavery and their spirits were broken. Father, we confess that often it's hard for us to hear your voice. Uh, because of the, the, the difficulties and the harshness of life, because we at times feel like our spirits inside of us are broken. But Father, we pray that you would enter into our midst now, that you would open our eyes to see you, that you would open our ears to hear your voice, open our hearts to experience you here this morning, Father, because we need your presence, and may we leave to your changed, because we've encountered you in your word. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. If you've been with us for the the past couple weeks, you know that we've been looking at the story of Moses and the story of of Exodus, the story of the Hebrew people who had found themselves into slavery uh, at the hands of the Egyptian nation. We know that the Hebrew people were God's chosen people, yet for some reason they had been enslaved by the Egyptians. And they cried out for God to deliver them. They cried out for God to save them from their enslavement. But by by and large, God was silent. What we know from our story is that he wasn't actually silent. That he was actually behind the scenes arranging things in order to deliver his people from their harsh slavery. But it was behind the scenes up until this week. In our passage that we look at this week, we see God begin to take center stage in the story. Isn't there times in our life where we quietly struggle wondering whether God is really doing anything in our lives? 
We don't hear his voice. We don't see him doing certain things. And we wonder if he's even there. Or we wonder if he's even present. But we trust that he is working behind the scenes. And all we wish is that he would move to center stage. Well, this morning we see God moving to center stage to begin to act on behalf of his people, the Hebrews. You know, the Hebrews, they knew very, very little about this God. They've heard stories about their grandfathers talking about a God, but they'd never experienced him firsthand up until our story this week, where they begin to learn a lot about God in a very, very short period of time. We've seen how the writer of the book of Exodus has, has lots of intentions about how he wrote. He didn't write it as a history lesson or as a history that we would read in a textbook, but he wrote it as a theological history. He wrote it, he told this story in order to tell us certain things about God and about God's character. And we see that in this story this morning. You consistently see God saying that he's doing things so that we will know him, so that the Israelites will know him, so that the Egyptians will know him. He's doing all these things so we can learn about what he is and who he operates and how he does things. But even the picture he gives to us is incomplete. And even the picture sometimes that we have of God is very incomplete. We know certain things about him, but there are certain things about him that are still shrouded in mystery. Things that we know, but also things that we cannot understand with our finite minds. One of the really challenging things to grasp about the scriptures, if you've read them at all, is to grasp the idea that God, in one instance, can be full of judgment and wrath. And then, in another instance, he can be so full of love and kindness and graciousness. And in our modern sensibilities, we look at those things. We look at the judgment and wrath of God, and we look at the love of God, and we think those two things can't really go together. I call this the February discussion. I call it the February discussion because often people try to read the Bible in a year, right? And they start out in the book of Genesis at the beginning of January, right? And they read about, you know, God creating the earth and everything was good and all wonderful. And they hear about these great stories uh, in the book of Genesis about how God does great things. And then they get to books like Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Joshua at right around February, And they begin to see a picture of a God who uh, is different than the God they've been told about. They've been told that God is very loving and he's kind and he's long-suffering and patient. And then in February, they get to these passages and they see this God can be angry at times. He can act in judgment. He can act in wrath. And it becomes very challenging for them. And they wonder, how could God be so wrathful in one instance and so loving in another? Well, we see evidence of both of those things in the passage that we're going to talk about today. It highlights two things about God's character that we see in the Exodus story. And the first is God's intense power and judgment against those who oppose him. We see God's intense power and judgment against those who oppose him. Look at verse 1. It says, But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God describes Pharaoh as this individual that has a very strong arm. 
And indeed he did. If you've read history at all, if you've understand the ancient world at all, you'll know that at this point, the Egyptian kingdom was one of the most powerful kingdoms of the ancient world. They were known to have the strongest army, the greatest wealth. They were the center of culture in the ancient world. They were the major superpower in the ancient world. They were so powerful that often people would worship Pharaoh as a god. Because they saw how great his power was that they actually worshipped him. They gave him their affection and their all. They worshipped him because in him was the center of all military might, wealth, and culture of the ancient world. Indeed, Pharaoh had a very, very strong arm. But you also read in verse 6, it says this, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. You see what God's doing? He's making comparison. He's making a comparison of the strong arm of Pharaoh and the outstretched arm of the Lord. He's making a comparison about these two great powers. I don't know if you've ever seen the, uh, the, the old musical, I think, Annie, Get Your Gun. Anybody ever seen this before? Is that too old? There's a song. You've probably heard this song before. There's a song in there that goes, Anything you can do, I can do better. Anything I can do better than you. You've all thought about that. You've all heard that song in the competition that goes. We've all been caught in competitions too, where we're sitting around with our buddies and and we're saying, hey, I I bet I'm stronger than you. And then it degenerates into some sort of arm wrestling match or, or some sort of feat of strength where we have to kind of demonstrate our superiority against the people that are around us. Well, you get that sense from this passage here this morning. You see, Moses and Aaron, they enter into Pharaoh's presence and they demand that Pharaoh lets the Hebrew people go. They say that he has to let his people go or God will come and act in might and in judgment. And what does Pharaoh do? He scoffs at the power of God and he decides instead to match his power as a mighty nation against the very power of God. And with each successive round, we see the power of Pharaoh versus the power of God. And in each round, Pharaoh's heart becomes hardened in opposition to the Lord God. You see, this is, this is a clash of wills. This is a fight between two sovereigns, the heavenly sovereign and the earthly sovereign. And the rounds come in these form of plagues that we read about in the kids' story this morning. In chapter 7, we read about the first plague in which the Nile River, which was the source of life for the Egyptians, becomes turned to blood by the very power of God. Imagine no water. Imagine all the, the fish dying and the stench that comes from this Nile that's been turned to blood. We read in the second plague in chapter 8 about, about frogs that began to swarm all throughout the land. Frogs in your kitchen and in your bedroom and in your bathroom. Frogs everywhere in the land of Egypt. In chapter 8 we read about gnats and lice that were as many as the dust is all over the earth. We read about flies that ended up consuming all of Egypt in the fourth plague. And in the fifth plague in chapter 9, we hear about a plague that struck and destroyed all of the Egyptian livestock. The livestock of the Hebrews were spared, but all of the livestock, horses, 
cows, donkeys, all of the livestock of the Egyptians are destroyed by this plague. An incredible hit to the economy of the Egyptian nation. In chapter six or in chapter nine, you hear about the sixth plague in which sores and boils ended up showing up on all the Egyptian people. You read about a hailstorm that comes and destroys all of the plants and the vegetations in Egypt. You read about locusts that come and destroy everything, covering the face of the earth, effectively destroying not only the livestock, but all the vegetation of the Egyptian people. And finally, in chapter 10, you read about the ninth plague where God sends darkness to consume the land, pitch black darkness for three days all over the Egyptian nation. With each successive plague, we are reminded of the great power of God as he manipulates creation to accomplish his very purposes. These are things that Pharaoh could not do. They are things that only the creator God can do. And we are reminded thousands of years later as we read them that these are things that only God, the creator, has the very power to do. You know, there may be no other greater life application than to constantly be reminded that God is God and we are not. That he is the creator, that he is the most high, and we are not. Because we so often like to believe that we are our own gods. That we have that ability when the reality is we don't. I was reminded of that this week. We, uh, a couple weeks ago, I, I promised my boys that we would go camping. And of course, it gets rained out. So we promised this week we were going to go camping. We had all these plans to go to to Harper's Ferry and go camping. But of course we get rained out again. Here I've promised my boys twice that we would go camping and enjoy God's nature. We get rained out again. So instead what I tried to do is I said, I'm going to try to figure this out on my own. So we set up the the tent in the basement. We decide we're going to camp in the basement. And uh, what I do in order to, to build the experience is I, I bring down a, a sound machine that we have at our house and I turn on the sounds of nature. So we're in our basement in a tent sleeping with a lantern with the sounds of crickets in the background that are coming from the sound machine. You see, my, my best attempts at being a creator of nature is a tent in the basement with a sound machine that makes the sound of crickets. The next morning, we woke up and we went out and we, we, we rented a little boat and we decided to go fishing on Lock Raven Reservoir. So we motored out into the middle of the reservoir and it's completely silent. We got to see the, the sun rise over the reservoir and the steam of the water come out over the reservoir. And I was immediately reminded of just how small we are. See, my best attempts at being my own creator was a sound machine and a tent in the basement. And the next morning... I was reminded of something that only God could do to make the sun rise and to create the beauty of nature. You see, I was reminded that God is God and that I'm not and that God alone has this power of creation. And you see in our passage, we see God manipulating that power of creation to not only free his people, but to pronounce judgment on the Egyptians. You see, the Egyptians, they worshipped Pharaoh as their own God because he was so great. But God proved to be bigger. 
bigger. They believed that the Nile was inhabited by a fertility god, but Moses' God, the God Most High, turned the Nile into blood. They believed in a certain god or goddess whose head was shaped like a frog, yet Moses' God brought about the swarms of frogs that covered the land. They believed in a physician God who could bring about healing, but Moses' God brought about both disease and healing. They believed in Ra, who was named the sun God, and yet Moses' God came in and brought darkness for, for three days. You see, God is not just using creation to free his people, but he is demonstrating to the world that he alone has the power over creation. He alone is God, and we are not. And like I said before, that is an easy thing for us to forget. You see, our general operating procedure is the fact that we are in control of all the circumstances that exist in our life. But the truth is, we are radically out of control of so many things that exist in our life. And we are constantly reminded that God does not bend to our will. He doesn't operate according to our wishes, and He certainly does not operate according to our timetable. C.S. Lewis famously joked one day that when we get to heaven, we're going to spend eternity thanking God for the prayers that He didn't answer rather than the prayers that He did. Why? Because we like to think that we've got it all figured out. We like to think that we've got it all under control. But He is the Creator God that knows things much better than we do. He is God and we are not. And He uses that power to free His people and to demonstrate to the world His greatness. You see, when, when we get that, when we understand that He is God and we are not, it can be incredibly freeing. It can be disarming, but it can be incredibly freeing and comforting to know that the God of the universe has all things under control. You know, the older I get, the more I think that the faith of little kids is far better than the faith of any adult I run into. Often my kids are are scared at night, so we go into their room and say, well, what are you scared of? I'm scared of this, I'm scared of that. And what do we say? We say, well, God is here with you. He is present, and He is in control. There's nothing that is bigger than God. And all of a sudden you see this comfort that comes on our kids' faith. Why? Why? Because they have faith in some ways that is better than you and I are. They understand that He is God and that He is in control And we can rest and find comfort in that. Folks, we serve a God who is greater and mightier than our minds can even imagine. He is great in His might and in power. And in our passage, we observe His intense power and judgment over those who oppose Him. But we also see the other side. We also see God's singular love towards His people. John Calvin said that this passage is a monument It's a monument to God's singular love that he has for his people. He says in verse 7, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. You see, he did all this, yes, to display his greatness to the world, but he also did it to express his deep, deep love for his people. He did it for a people who had largely forgotten about him, 
for a people who doubted whether he even existed anymore. He did it for people he knew that once he rescued them and freed them from Egypt would complain and cry and whine and wish they could go back to Egypt because life was better back then. He did it for messy people who would consistently doubt him and would consistently rebel against him. Yet, he chose these people to love And he chose them to be a demonstration to the world of his love for mankind. Imagine the Hebrew people in this story as they see all these plagues one after another come out. Imagine them seeing these plagues inflicted on the Egyptians while they are largely spared from all of them. They didn't know hardly anything about God whatsoever. So they begin to marvel at his greatness. They begin to wonder at his power. And they're amazed at the fact that this great God was doing all of this just for them in order to free them because he had chosen to love them and to care for them. Now, I know it's not Christmas, but one of my favorite movies ever is the story of it's a one, the movie It's a Wonderful Life. It's a Christmas movie, but it's just a good movie. And there's the main character in the movie that's uh, a guy named George Bailey. And at the beginning of the movie, there's this scene in which uh, George Bailey is, is, is on a date with this girl he would eventually marry. And he's realized as he's on this date with this girl that, uh, that he loves this girl and he wants to marry her. So he pulls her aside and he says, look up at that moon. And she looks up at the moon and he said, do you want that moon? Because if you do, I'm going to lasso that moon and I'm going to pull it down and I'm going to give it to you. And she says, I'd, I'd like to see that. Now, why did he say that? He said it because he was a fool who was in love and wanted to show her that he was willing to do anything, even lasso the moon, to bring it down to her to express his love for her. He says it to express the length that he was willing to go to demonstrate his affection. But at the end of the day, we know that he can't really lasso the moon and give it away to her. But we serve a God who not only says that he loves his people, but we serve a God who has the ability to move the forces of creation to express his singular love for his people. Not because, he, not because they were righteous, not because you and I are righteous, not because they were virtuous or because you and I are virtuous, but because he had chosen them to be an object of his singular love. And he offers that love, that same love to you and to I. You know, the Exodus story tells us about how God uses his might and his power in order to redeem his people from their Egyptian enslavement. But the gospel story tells us about how God redeems his people from their enslavement to sin. He did it by coming down and becoming one of us, by becoming a human just like you and I. One author tells a funny story that goes like this. There's a marvelous story about a four-year-old child who woke one night frightened, convinced that in the darkness around her there were all kinds of spooks and monsters. Alone, she ran to her parents' bedroom. Her mother calmed her down and, taking her by the hand, led her back to her own room where she put on a light and reassured the child with these words, the words that we use. You needn't be afraid. You are not alone here. God is in the room 
and he is with you. The child replied, I know that God's here, but I need someone in this room who has some skin on. You know, the gospel story tells us that God took on skin in order to redeem his people. When he was here on this earth, he demonstrated to the world that he was the same God that existed in the Exodus story. He calmed the storm in front of his followers, but instead of redeeming his people through might and power, he redeemed his people through a great act of weakness, through allowing his great and strong outstretched arm to be stretched out and nailed on a cross to allow all the judgment and wrath that you and I deserve for our sins to be poured upon him at the cross. See, the redemption of the Israelites happened through a show of strength, but our ultimate redemption happens through an incredible display of weakness and sacrifice. But the motivation in both of those stories, whether it's the Exodus story or our redemption in Jesus Christ, is his white-hot, passionate, singular love for his people. Know that that great and almighty God wants to display his singular love for you. Not because of anything in you that is righteous or virtuous or anything that you've done to deserve that love. He simply wants to do it out of an expression of His grace. As you come before Him this morning, receive the grace of God just as those Hebrews did and experience the freedom from the enslavement of sin that we all feel and experience the singular love of God in your life.